wait, wait, before you put your phone down, if you love this podcast, please give it a quick review. Okay, okay, here we go. But no, I mean, listen, nuclear waste has never hurt a single person, place, or thing in all of human history. So the idea that nuclear waste is dangerous is insane. But once again, if your five closest friends and everyone you know always said nuclear waste is the most hazardous thing on planet Earth, I can't fault you for believing that. But yeah, it's just not true. Hello again and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen. I don't know much, but I have some very smart friends to help me figure things out. And if you listen to this podcast, then no matter who, where, or when you are, you do too. Together, we explore how investing, technology, and entrepreneurship will create a brighter, more abundant future. And that's especially true today on this special episode, because the magic that's about to happen between my lips and your ears could very well save the world. Today, my guest is Brett Kugelmas. He is the founder and CEO of Last Energy, a startup that develops modular nuclear reactors. And he's Last Energy is such a badass company name. He also started and hosts the Titans of Nuclear podcast. This guy's so good at naming stuff. That podcast has close to 400 episodes featuring experts from across the nuclear industry, engineers, founders, economists, regulators, and a bunch more. And in this episode, it's a deep dive into nuclear. We talk about why we need more nuclear meltdowns, not less. A uh, little counterintuitive take there. Uh, what a world with cheap, abundant energy could look like and why very importantly, the only true solution to climate change is nuclear energy. Brett is an encyclopedia of knowledge. He's not afraid to tell it like it is. It's a very, very interesting conversation. I had a great time with it. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. And if you love thinking about investing in and supporting the kind of amazing future that nuclear power can get us, you would love investing alongside us in today's great founders and great early stage tech companies. I started a rolling fund last year with two of my most talented and trusted friends. We've all been angel investing for years and together we've managed to fund a few billion dollar companies. This fund lets us invest your money alongside ours into some of these companies too. We will be investing in some of those promising founders we can find around the world to create this insane, abundant, incredible future that we all know is possible. If you love this episode, these conversations, and these lessons, you'll love the companies we invest in. You can check out some of our recent uh, Rolling Fund podcast episodes. I record interviews with, with Bo and Al talking about the companies that we've invested in recently. Number 53 is the most recent episode in that series. I'm honored that many readers and listeners have already joined the fund as co-investors. You can learn more at rolling.fun.fun. It's linked in the show notes below and accredited investors can invest with us through AngelList today. If you have questions or you'd like to hear more, please reach out to me. Now, before we get to our conversation, a quick message from this episode's sponsor. And if you're pulling out your phone to skip this part, that's another really good opportunity to leave a quick review. Thank you very much. This podcast is sponsored by Athena. One of the biggest jumps of leverage in my life was when I started working with an EA, an executive assistant through Athena. I'm almost two years into that now, and it's been simply the best thing I've ever done to buy back my time and get more freedom. Athena hires, trains, and matches you with a full-time EA who's based in the Philippines, and then they provide you guidance and accountability and playbooks to be sure that you and your EA have a successful relationship together. And don't take my word for it. I'm going to read you two testimonials from people that I previously referred that signed up after hearing me talk about it on the podcast. 
It's been great working with Arthur. I don't know how I could do it without my EA anymore. In the long run, once I get more organized, I can even see myself working with multiple EAs. The challenge right now is continuing to improve my time management and delegation skills. Here's another one. Almost any time that JC proactively comes to me with an idea, suggestion, or improvement is a good one. He's great at completing all assigned tasks. I use him especially for travel research, email marketing, publishing, and all tech and automation tasks. He's even been planning an extended trip for me and it's been a total breeze. If you want to get access to the lifestyle, the ease, the sleeping in, the fewer worries, the shorter checklists that come with having a full-time EA, open your browser, type in athenago.com and sign up. There's often a wait list to get matched with an EA. So plan ahead, sign up now today. There's no commitment required and you will learn something just by going through their quick application process. To learn more about how to use an EA, the playbooks the expert use and investing in the corporation of you, check out my episode with Athena's CEO and COO. It's episode number 38. It's just overflowing with valuable ideas. It's still one of our most popular episodes and is one of the ones that I learned the most from personally. Once more, athenago.com and be sure to list Eric Jorgensen as your referrer. I'm careful to only pick sponsors I believe in, whose products I enjoy, and I think you will too. Thank you so much for supporting the sponsors who help make this show possible. Now with both ears and everything in between, please enjoy this conversation arriving in three, two, one. I think we met we met for the first time at a foresight conference and I knew in one sentence that I when you were giving your talk that it's like I got to get this guy on the podcast I want everybody to hear him do you have any inkling what that sentence was Ooh, probably something about more meltdowns the merrier yeah I think you were like we need more nuclear meltdowns not less and I was like oh this man has an interesting point of view that I would like to explore <laughs> bring it on yeah well we better explain the context of that at some point before we scare too much of your audience away. But I'm sure we'll let's, get to it soon enough. Let's, let's start there, man. Why do we need more nuclear meltdowns? Well, the basic, the basic theory there is that there's a misunderstanding. You know, people associate meltdowns with hazard, but it's actually not the meltdown itself that creates hazard. It's the movement of radionuclides. It's the creation of material that's adverse to human health into an area where humans would come in contact to it with. The actual melting isn't a problem. Now that's an important distinction because a lot of a lot of technologists use this concept around meltdown or meltdown proof to, you know, to demonstrate value in a different strategy that often sacrifices many other qualities that you would want in your system, including simplicity and reduction of accents or anything. It's just, you know, you focus on, if you focus on the meltdown, which isn't really the right problem to solve and you just use it as a proxy for your problem, um, sometimes you end up solving the wrong problem. So that's one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is that if you don't want people to be afraid of nuclear, you can't brand something that happens infrequently as catastrophic or if it's already perceived as catastrophic, you should make it happen more frequently and show people that it's not a hazard. So for instance, it's like every time that you, you know, light a candle, you know, you're technically creating a fire, but you're not creating a hazard. But it does get people a little more con you know, confident with the concept of, oh, not all fire means that you're burning alive in a building. 
So exposure to something that has a negative connotation to show other sides of it helps reduce like the inherent cultural fear with that event. And so that's more of the, we need more meltdowns, not less. And also, you know, it gets people's ears, you know, ears and eyes lit up to, to listen to the rest of what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you're so good at some of these like hooks or, or just like spicy takes that people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I'm going to need you to explain that because there, there's so much of this insane sort of like totally counter fact, I don't know, counterfactual, counterintuitive, just like insane comparisons in nuclear, in nuclear in particular, that I think you're good at sort of laying out for people. I think another one that, that I've heard you talk about in some of your other speeches is exactly what you're talking about. Like we are so afraid of nuclear because of how it's talked about and how it's regulated in particular, that like the signals that the regulations give us make us so much more fearful than is like warranted by the physical reality of these things. Right. And that's not an accident. That's actually by design. And so you see this actually crop up in a lot of different industries. And so what happened in the nuclear industry where the incumbents at the time used something called regulatory capture to create a moat around themselves. And then over time, as their business evolved, they actually benefited from the fear of nuclear to create more regulatory moats. And so a lot of the fear from uh, around nuclear doesn't come from environmentalists making stuff up. It doesn't come from the oil industry trying to be more competitive. It comes from the old nuclear industry itself that over time morphed from a business model of selling power plants to selling fear. So they could sell safety systems. They could sell add-ons to the existing plants, which became 10 times as profitable as the original plant itself. Wow. I've never heard that before. That is that is wild. I, I was just listening to Mark Andreessen talk about the, the two-way nature of regulatory capture, which I think is really interesting, right? Like, Oh, where was he doing this? I, I love listening to him. What was the, um, what was the platform? It was a kind of obscure podcast. I can send it to you. It was like an acronym. It was with a, with a journalist and an academic, but it was like a two-hour long podcast pretty recently. And he, he talked about like, you normally think of it as people sort of using the laws like businesses using the existing, like getting the government to pass the laws, but there's also the government capturing the businesses to continue to enforce the laws. It was a, yeah, it was a pretty interesting, he's like, it's a two-way feedback loop. Like most people don't recognize that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's what, what I think is even more interesting is his voice, but then also other voices coming from this, like the Silicon Valley tech, or maybe even just engineering community, really drawing a different, like understanding of what regulations and even industry is just like from a totally different perspective that hasn't been done before by economists or social scientists so it is very cool to see especially such like a hardcore engineer as andreessen like give us his take on it that is cool to as a sort of an operator in this in the nuclear space like do you find regulation to be the biggest hurdle the biggest impediment to progress for the industry as a whole well, yeah, I mean, listen, regulation was used as a tool specifically to prevent progress. It was designed that way. And in some, and that's in the nuclear industry, but in some other industries, it's also designed that way. And sometimes, you know, that's the explicit intent. And then sometimes it's just like a confluence of incentives that drives things that way. But yeah, no doubt. The reg and I'm not saying, hey, throw away all regulations, but the way that these regulations were designed was specifically to inhibit progress. Yeah. Of new nuclear companies. Yeah. New well, of new nuclear installations, new nuclear companies, 
Yeah. I mean, the industry essentially cannibalized itself, cannibalizes its own assets in a very like rent-seeking behavior to extract as much value, not from the production of energy, but from like the infrastructure itself. It was such a shame. How do you navigate that as, as one of the startups who's kind of like targeted and roadblocked by old nuclear, by existing regulations, you know, by, by regulatory bodies? And by new nuclear too, not a new nuclear too, a lot of new nuclear companies, they might think they have the intent to build, but their actions belie that truth. Instead, rather, they'd almost never build, but just have forever science projects. And they, the, the, the people themselves would be happy with forever science projects. And I mean, you see this in other areas too you know, all sorts of scientific endeavors that like have like a pseudo commercial lens, but are really driven off of government grants and government money. But a lot of the new nuclear companies are that if you were to like say, Hey, would you rather have something actually built and like you, you personally be involved in something that's actually built or work on your favorite technology? 90% of them would choose. I'd rather work on my favorite technology and never actually see anything built. Interesting. So, so what's the what's the playbook when you know you're dealing when the biggest risk in your company is regulatory? Yeah, so I mean, as long as I mean, that's like part of my entrepreneurial principles is to always solve the right problem, identify what your actual problem is, not your proximate problem, your like your root problem, and then design a system to solve that problem. And so, you know, regulatory competence and regulatory strategy is a huge part of my company, Last Energy, like our like institutional prowess. And we have essentially hedged our regulatory risk by working in multiple jurisdictions. We're one of the few companies that does that. So that's, you know, a core part of the strategy. But also, you know, working with regulators. I mean, I've spent the last five years getting to know regulators and meeting with them, you know, you know, I mean, hundreds of them across dozens of countries and having amazing conversations. I mean, a lot of the individuals at these regulatory bodies are incredible people and I love talking to them and they're super brilliant and smart and have amazing perspectives and want to do good. My problem is mostly with like the institutions themselves and how they're set up that often handicap, they shackle their own employees' motivation to like fulfill the stated objective of the regulator, but not the the way that these bodies were actually constructed. How global is sort of the approach for Last Energy? Like, are you hoping to work in the U.S.? Is that sort of, or is that not well, possible with the with the existing regulation? Regulation. Well, we work through the U.S. I mean, definitely are subject to different regulatory bodies in the U.S. as well, especially as it comes to, like export control. So, like, we work very closely with the NNSA on the export of nuclear intellectual property as governed under you know regulation part 810 appendix a you know which has like a like a fast tracked process to actually do this if you work with a set of whitelisted countries so you know we do work with us regulators you know state commerce as well but then when it comes to nuclear licensing of facilities of ground installations there is a different set of regulators that are that which is like you know it's the it's the sovereign right of a, any given country to regulate the the physical property you know that's nuclear related on their country and so they have their own regulatory bodies that we just work a lot more closely with i'd say the us market for us is probably a half decade or a decade out 
and there would have to be just some serious changes. And you know, if if other companies think they can pave the path here, great, we'll follow in their footsteps here while we focus on blazing the trail abroad. Interesting. All right, I want to I want to spend come back and spend a lot of time on on Last Energy, but l- let's kind of. I'm curious, like, who are you? Like, what kind of ba- what kind of background does it take to be a guy who builds nuclear power plants? Well, I'm going to say something a little um, caustic here, maybe. <laughs> Not for the last time, I'm sure. Bring it on. Yeah, yeah a little hot take. <laughs> I'd say the background that it takes to design the nuclear power plants is probably a nuclear engineer, which I'm not. The background that it takes to build a nuclear power plant is probably anything but a nuclear engineer. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> I mean, listen, like in this country, yeah, like we, it's pretty clear we haven't you know, built any nuclear installation. I mean, they're building some stuff. They're, you know, Vogel's finally coming to a conclusion, but half the people that started that project are dead at this point by the time it's going to get finished. So when it comes to like nuclear building experience, the nuclear industry is really quite limited there. I mean, I come from a mechanical engineering background and I built products and I built frontier tech. And my first startup was a drone business. And so it had all, you know, the various disciplines, electrical controls, in many, many cases, much more complicated disciplines, you know, autonomous controls, you know, certainly mechanical and structural and aerodynamics. I mean, there's, there's a lot of to it and then manufacturing, right? And so and then there was also a regulatory component to that too. So that was a lot of the background that I had in my previous startup that I think helped inform many of the ways that I go about building this one. And I, I, reading between the lines of some of your other appearances, it sounds like sort of the entrepreneurial zeal that you bring from your Silicon Valley operating background is, is thin on the ground in the nuclear industry. I, I'd say that there's a lot of entrepreneurial zeal, just not a lot of entrepreneurial experience. So most of the entrepreneurs in the nuclear sector are nuclear PhDs or nuclear professors and don't have a previous startup under their belt. And maybe that is one of my advantages here. Yeah. I mean, you, I, I, the talk I was watching this morning, you were pounding the podium like faster, faster, no excuses. Stop yelling. Stop waiting for patient capital and become an impatient operator. Like I'm paraphrasing, but the the... You know, it it was castigating a room full of supposedly, you know, nuclear entrepreneurs for just not bucking up and being operators. I know. I know it's crazy. And it's like, so I was giving this talk. It was pretty awesome panel. It was like, you know, Bill Magwood, who is like the head of the nuclear part of the OECD. Bill Gates was on this panel. And then there's this professor, I won't name his name, but it's a Berkeley professor that has a nuclear startup. And his one advice to the audience was take things slow, go slow and steady in your nuclear entrepreneurship. He literally said those words. I like, I almost couldn't believe it. And then, so in my, you know, I rewrote my speech on the fly to (laughs) totally take him down. I mean, like in a, in a very nice way. And I, you know, I want to be respectful as well, but just like from a philosophy perspective, I just thought he was sending totally the wrong message. Like I couldn't believe it. Like if I were any of his investors, I would have pulled out in that exact minute. I just like, I could not believe it. Yeah, I don't think anybody's issue with with the nuclear space is that it's moving too quickly. The, though I understand if you know if you most of the relationship you have with that word is fear based, then you're you're forced to move slow for a bunch of reasons. You know, yeah, um, it's part of your yeah, and it's part of your business model sometimes too. I mean, yeah, with this company, you know, they they essentially hype up the fear around nuclear waste so they can sell a nuclear waste solution. It's like ridiculous. Okay. 
so so what was the transition between between drones and building nuclear well, i started a, a research institute called the energy impact center which was just my own money and a vehicle for me to hire people and do business out of and and you know start really just you know, taking a first principles look at climate and energy and you know, very quickly realized nuclear was misunderstood totally under leveraged and you know just based on like a raw physics basis should be like the core pillar of our energy transition it just made sense and what didn't make sense was everyone's reason why we didn't have more nuclear everyone just kept flowing back to the same thing that you hear growing up or that you hear by you know i always like to say like i almost can't fault people when like everyone just like the sum of people's knowledge on any given subject is usually what their five closest friends around them say on that you know so it's like you almost can't people if most of culture has been saying the same thing over and over again for that not to re-question that assumption but but in many cases they're still dead wrong yeah hopefully we're fighting fire with fire in the with this podcast you know like trying to trying to replace some of those narratives so well, well, i think what's drew- funny is i think even the people who come away from this podcast like agreeing it's not necessarily going to be like the merits of the argument that they agree with, it's going to mostly be they are also contrarians, and they're like latching onto something <laughs> that like kind of makes sense, and you know, or seemingly makes sense. I should say it definitely does make sense, but to them, it seems that it makes sense, and that has a contrarian spin to it, and they're just going to relate to that and maybe parrot what I'm saying, but they still probably won't have like a fundamental like, you know, you know, like you know, source material research to back it up. But that's okay. Like I'll take them. Well, it's it's interesting how many times. The, like the shallow opinion precedes the the deep research, right? Like you you form an opinion and then go do the work to like, wait, let me find out if that's as true as I want it to be, <laughs> right? Totally, like, totally. It's one of the cognitive biases. I think that's like one of the, in the category of like selection bias. You, you only, like you're looking, you seek facts, even without realizing that support the thesis that you already have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's plant the thesis that, that nuclear is good and- Work I think most people there. at this. I think most people at this point actually do intuit that, mm. and over time, it's just going to get more and more. It well, it wasn't until d- doing research on you for this conversation that I realized that Brett Kugelmass, guy who started Last Energy, is also Brett Kugelmass, guy who started Titans of Nuclear podcast, <laughs> uh, which is like something I've been listening to for a while now as I've tried to kind of understand, try to build rationale for my hopeful, uh, optimistic opinion that nuclear is amazing. That's cool. I had a similar experience with Joe Rogan. When I (laughs) heard the first podcast with him, I didn't realize that was the same like fear factor guy, the same comedian guy. And then it took me like, it it took a little while for me to like put all that together. Yeah. (laughs) That guy looks familiar. What's going (laughs) on here? Yeah. So quick yeah shout out for your your podcast which is 400 episodes or so over the last four years which is crazy output interviews a ton of amazing people in that space which i love like all over the map too not just like ceos and founders but but operators and regulators and it's a really interesting sort of overview of the space the shout out goes to my team uh, olivia who's been managing the podcast for the last few years now sarah is taking it over they and they just do a tremendous job Awesome. Uh, and then I should also mention the other podcast that we also run, which we don't tie any of these brands together, which maybe is where some of the confusion comes from, <laughs> but it's called Energy Impact. So there's another hundred episodes there that oh, speaks about okay. energy issues in a context more broad than just nuclear. 
Nice. How did the podcast figure into the founding of your company? I think it was it was about two years before that you started Titans of Nuclear and you were like doing this sort of research process. But how did that, what sort of role did it play? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn from the best. I wanted to have like easy access to all facets of the industry. And so the podcast, you know, I didn't know this at first, but I tested a few things and the podcast ended up being a channel that enabled that, that reduced the, you know, I think of it in terms like customer acquisition cost. Obviously these aren't really customers, but let's say like stakeholder relationship cost, you know, any given relationship that you want to create from cold outreach has a real cost to your time and effort. And if you want to totally maximize those numbers of relationships that you develop, given a limited resource environment, you have to optimize along those parameters. And so the podcast was simply an optimization. Interesting. So when, when talk to me about the process of what you learned through those two years of, of research and sort of mapping the idea maze towards what became Last Energy. Yeah, I mean, it took a year before I felt comfortable saying anything controversial because I just always was thinking, even though like the answer seemed pretty obvious, I was always just in my head thinking, oh, I don't know enough. There's something I'm missing here. And I, but then I gave a talk at Oak Ridge about a year in to summarize some of my learnings. And it was the first forum that I said something controversial, mostly about like this, you know, the meltdowns not being a bad thing. And a few other things too, you know, starting to like critique the nuclear industry for its for its problems instead of blaming outside industries. And people started getting up and clapping. Like I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I was like, I thought I was going to get booed out of the room, have stuff thrown at me. And people literally stood up one at a time and started clapping. And one person, you know, voiced an opinion. They, I mean, they said out loud, like you were saying the thing that we've always known, but nobody is like, okay, saying out loud. And I know I feel like I'm just like complimenting myself here, but this was like a, like a really pivotal moment of validation. And you know, that expression, you know, you can't, you can't get someone to understand something when they're paid not to. That was essentially the encapsulation of that idea is like all of their jobs, anyone who's an expert in nuclear their job is like literally their livelihood, their family, like putting food on the table for their family is tied to towing the line of the existing nuclear narrative, which is designed not to sell new plants, but to sell fear. And so it was very refreshing for them to hear this outsider opinion. And that gave me all the confidence I needed to refine that message for the next couple of years to come. So what does that feel like inside the nuclear industry now? Are there people who are clinging tightly to that kind of fear mongering business model and people who are like, hell yeah, let's build, build, build. Well, there's like this whole new component to, let's say not the industry, but like the sector of like all of these ad, like advocacy groups and they're incredible. And I can take zero credit for anything they're doing. They're like creating these like, like global movements. Like it's got like Mark Nelson and then there's others. A lot of them came out of like the school of Schellenberger. And yeah. they are. We, we had Mark Nelson on this podcast. Oh, yeah. oh my god, I should have re, I should have done my research. Uh, Dude, oh he's the, he's I'm going to go man. back and listen. Uh, yeah, uh, I want to have Chris Kiefer on too. He's Chris he's hilarious. Is the man. Also, yeah. it's so funny. Chris, Chris and I like. I feel like Chris is one of my best friends, even though we we actually hadn't met in person. We've known each other for two years. I mean, I literally listen to this guy when I go to sleep because like, yeah, it's like that's when you have time to listen to a podcast. <laughs> and then he listens to my podcast. So we had this like whole like relationship without. Yeah like actually being like we had this like asynchronous relationship which is just like so weird but so i've always felt like and i just feel like i know him and he's such a good guy and what he's doing is incredible and he's so smart 
yeah. hardworking. It was this like incredible dude. And then finally got a chance to meet him in real life. And it was as if we had known each other the whole time, which, you know, we met for the first time two years then. It was crazy. Yeah. Will you give like a 30 second background on Chris just for people who want to look him up and follow him? Because I, I think he's hilarious, but you'll yeah. explain him better than I will. Yeah. So his platform is called the Decouple Podcast. And his background is he's an emergency room physician. So like he's got, and I think it's like, it's super cool and super key that he has this like unimpeachable credibility. A lot of others, you know, when they're super pro nuclear, are just simply accused as being like stooges for the industry unfairly, but it's like almost impossible to overcome that. But he wears his like medical badge like around like to these conferences. Like he's like a real doctor, like saving lives in an emergency room as his day job and just does this out of the passion of like wanting to do good for the world. And so people are almost forced to take him more seriously and it has an incredible impact. I mean, he's been able to like make movements at the highest levels of government in Canada as just like some guy, not some guy, but like some guy who's a doctor and has a podcast and like now like the prime minister like listens to him. I'm not sure which of the ministers, like there's ministers that listen to him. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some hilarious videos of him like rolling into parliament or whatever Canada calls its Congress with with like a, this amazing mustache and just being like chilling out and being like, guys, 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 nuclear's rad. I have the floor for five minutes. Let me let me explain like in small words how important this is it's just hilarious yeah yeah and nelson's got the got the mustache too occasionally at least they're, yeah they're i don't know what is so it with funny. you guys yeah. maybe you should grow a mustache i don't know i, I had one it. when i started i feel i feel like I, I should get a little credit for that but i know i haven't had one and it looks a little too goofy to be in a professional setting so i haven't had it's, one for years yeah something about that nuclear 80s like throwback throwback <laughs> mustache um, oh that that's right that's right it's like a throwback yeah so well how did you decide okay so this so picking up from sort of finding your feet with like resonance in in the nuclear industry how did you go from i'm just trying to learn to i think i got my head around like a business model or or an opportunity that, that isn't being tackled like how did you decide what form last energy should take when you when you started this company well, so yeah, I spent that year of like just learning and then a year of being invited to like keynote all these events. And so I had this like forum now to like test out my thesis and get a lot of feedback from like thousands of people. And I put the videos up online. I get back, you know, from like even like global communities. And I use that to essentially, you know, tell everyone what our strategy was for last energy over the course of a year and get feedback. And at the end of that year, I uh, felt like we we're, you know, and I was also actually, I, man, I, I forget this sometimes, but I really did not want to start another startup at the time because <laughs> I'd just done that. It was like so brutal, like personally, yeah. it's just like so brutal. Yeah. So, and I just come out of one and I was like, I don't want to do that again. But yeah, I was, I was telling everyone what to do and nobody was listening. And so I just, at some point did it myself what's the what's the it the it is don't reinvent the reactor just take the existing standard reactor shrink it down you know reduce the risk like you don't even have to reduce the cost on paper you just have to reduce the risk of cost overruns in reality so it's mm. like pretty simple um so just do that and you're gonna have the cheapest cleanest energy mankind has ever seen and either people refuse to believe that it's that simple or they're incentivized not to follow that path but that's what we're doing 
it seems so simple when you put it that way. So like, what's so, what is special about this approach? I mean, I like to say we're innovative and in how uninnovative we are. Like we are not, like we are not introducing material science, chemistry, fuel, physics, you know, supply chain risk, you know, we're just not doing that. Like if you just look at the existing <laughs> nuclear installations, they're already the cheapest power mankind has ever produced. Like if you can look historically and look at their build costs and their build schedule, like nothing to this day beats a 1968 nuclear power plant. And it produces baseload power, you know, produces, you know, dispatchable power, produces clean power, power with energy security. Every characteristic, if you want to write down what you want out of a power system, a 1968 nuclear reactor does it. So just like try to get as close to that as possible. And and yeah, that's our thesis. And and when then to just build a shitload of them as quick as you can? Yeah. And then you get the cost down even more. I mean, like we are we're gonna demonstrate a world where not only energy is clean, but energy is 10 times or eventually maybe even a hundred times cheaper than it is today. And that's energy abundance. That's not just clean energy and reduction of air pollution. That's the end of poverty as we know it for the entire globe. Like what could be cooler than that? I want to write a post about this eventually, but I'm still kind of like collecting ideas. Like what happens when energy is too cheap to meter, when it's, you know, a hundred or a thousand times cheaper? What what are all of the things that change in the world? Like I think that's such an insane, fun, beautiful question. It is so cool. And yeah, I highly encourage you to do that so I can start including those examples <laughs> in my speech. Because like I try to think about it and I've got like these ideas in my head, but it's it's gonna it's like a gonna be a little bit of like art to make sure that you're communicating the idea in a way that is both visionary but seems achievable. So yeah, send me that list when you get it. You know, Jason Crawford, who hosted that conference that we were talking about that we met at, he's also like into that question as well. So he's another good person to ask. I, I would love to talk to Jason. I had Josh Doris Hall on the podcast also oh, who yeah. wrote, yeah, where's my flying car? And he he goes through a handful of them in there. Examples in that book, but like desalinization is one that like basically fresh water is abundant if energy is sufficiently cheap. Yeah. So roll with me on that one for a second. Like, can we take that one step deeper? So let's say that we have unlimited clean water everywhere. What are what are some of the other things that we can do with it other than just like providing clean drinking water? Like, can we change the weather by like spraying it into the air in key times and key places? Like maybe. I mean, All right, like, yeah. Big, I mean, it's a big input to abundance of food is it fresh water. Yeah. Maybe that means the end of war because how much of war is based off of like being able to like grow your crops where you need them, when you need them. Yeah. I mean, war, the scarcity, the main modes of scarcity, right? Energy, water, food like yeah. the things that drive people to kill generally. And like trees are like food for buildings. So that means like structural materials become cheaper too, right? Yep. Structural materials. Actually just Alex Bridgman sent me a, a post this morning, a little clip of something, and I, I'm not going to be able to articulate the science in between, but it, there's basically a startup that's changing, has a new method of producing steel where energy is the main input. And they're like excited about that because as energy costs come down, steel becomes massively cheap. Another like super critical sort of building input. So um, I would actually take that one step further. Like I would start with that and I would say, what is better than steel that doesn't exist as a structural material because the energy input is even a higher percentage of its total cost. And like the thing that would come to me are like specialty plastics. Like there's a plastic that's in like firemen's helmets that I know just from research at one point that is like 
stronger than steel and 10 times lighter. Oh. Like, and obviously, so it's like a plastic, so it sequesters carbon. So like, imagine if you just built all buildings out of that plastic, you'd sequester carbon, everything would be lighter, cheaper, better, easier, and that would just, and energy would enable that, right? Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, there's, if electric cars are prolific, transportation gets way cheaper. Yeah. Let's go beyond cars. Like maybe if energy is so Trains, much cheaper. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like these little personal quadcopter things like it could really take off. Yeah. 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 I know somebody working on farming robots that's very driven by entirely electric components. So yeah, and manufacturing increasingly like electric electricity is the main input too. Yeah. So all that to say, we should definitely, definitely, definitely really, really worry about energy getting cheaper. Focus on it. Not worry about it. Focus on it. Focus on it. Yes. Thank you. Good. Good reframe. Okay. So, so last energy sells whole ass power plants. Who do you sell those to? Yeah. So we actually don't sell the power plants. We design, build, own, and operate the power plants and we sell elect long-term electricity contracts oh. to our customers. Okay. And those customers are heavy industrial energy users such as you know, glass, aluminum, cement, pulp and paper, steel, chemicals like ammonia, automotive manufacturing, battery manufacturing. These are, that's a list of some of our early customers right there. Interesting. So these are like people, big companies who own factories who want their own power source directly. Yep. Interesting. It's not even necessarily that governments are buying them or that utilities are adding them to the grid, anything like that. How, how many of your plants are actually connected to the grid? Oh, our first one will come online in 2025, but we've sold a couple thousand already. Talk to me about the, you said something in there about mitigating. There's a long risk, list of risks you were avoiding taking on. And one of them you listed and there was a supply chain. Yeah. So a lot of those factor into supply chain. So yeah. So anytime you make a change to chemistry, material science, fuel, or physics, the cascading effect that it has on on destandardizing your supply chain, forcing each of those components to become, I mean, even simple components such as like valves or tanks or regulators or compressors or turbines, each one of those now becomes a billion dollar R&D project just to integrate into a system that has a fundamentally different chemistry. And so, yeah, I always say, I believe that your reactor physics will work. I believe your system will work, no problem. But like your supply chain now is gonna be 10 times as hard to procure and more expensive, have a higher you know failure rate a decade out. Like it'll take a decade for you to realize that your corrosion rates are just slightly off than what you thought they were. That means your capacity factor 10 years out will go down and your impact on your energy price is driven up now because of that. So it's like, yeah, those are not challenges I would want to take on. So you're using entirely existing parts. Yep, 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 yep. Essentially, we have a rule. Every single component that goes in our power plant has to be operating in 100 power plants around the world. Have you, have you, and you haven't found any components that haven't been able to meet that yet? Nope. So, I mean, nuclear, a nuclear plant, a standard light water reactor nuclear plant is like the simplest possible thing you can imagine. You've got a thermal power plant and there's tens of thousands of those and all the components that goes in those. And then your hot rock is essentially a pressure vessel and nuclear fuel bundles, which are also produced by the tens of thousands. I mean, most people don't realize those same fuel bundles provide 10% of world electricity today, 10% of world electricity. So those are fairly common too. So yeah, so everything is pretty simple. 
that's the whole point. Make it simple and don't don't you know run away with too many good ideas. Yeah. How long does it take? So you said the first one's going online in 2025. When that's did that, a target. Uh, it might take longer, but that's what we're targeting. When did that process start then? In many ways, it started four years ago. I mean, a lot, a big part of this is getting through the regulations. And I started meeting with regulators four years ago to really understand, you know, which regulators are capable of of conducting, a, you know, a good a good licensing process and spending time with them, helping them get up to speed on the concept and. A lot of it's credibility building. A lot of what a nuclear regulator does isn't just assess your design, it assesses your company. So yeah, so it started four years ago and we'll take a few more years till the first one comes online. Where's that one gonna be? Could be in Poland or Romania or the United Kingdom. Those are the three markets that we're pursuing as early markets. Okay. So you haven't been able to start construction yet? We actually, can, we actually built them in Texas but then we ship uh-huh. them in pieces to the target markets and do final assembly on site. So we don't actually have to know where the first planet's going to go to already start working on it. That's that's super cool. So I mean, there's these kind of like prefab construction. Is that a reasonable analogy? That's exactly right. We go to okay. shops that on the outside say prefab construction, and we say, <laughs> "Here, here's the schematics. Go build us this." Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, I mean, a, another another way to sort of yeah de-risk. And they're all like standard parts, right? You're just walls exactly. and doors and everything that is, is built for our plan has been built in hundreds of plants already. It's just our specific configuration. I mean, in many ways, like okay, like I'm downplaying the the like the technical input to this. Like you could say the same thing about almost any product that exists. Like a smartphone is a collection of you know hundreds of components that are off the shelf components used. You know, the chips are used in other things and and were already. And then the job of Apple or Samsung, it's still a lot of technical work, but to like design a configuration of how it comes together and into a product that they can then sell. And we, in many ways, just do the same thing. We are the systems integrators of components in a unique form factor that we productize and market and sell around the world. And, and then continue to service, right? So you're, yeah. it is last energy staff that's managing these plants securing these plants, operating. And for that, we typically partner with local power plant operations companies that obviously speak the language and already have the staff ready to go. And then they just plug into our facility just like they would, you know, a modern natural gas facility that would be built. Okay. Interesting. So you're kind of the, if you're the general contractor or like the accountable party for you, you're hiring a local contractor to we're like a step that. above, yeah, the general contractor. We're more like the engineer, owner's engineer, and then the like the labor is usually done by subcontracted companies. Interesting. I mean, I guess that makes sense <coughs> if the requirements and stuff are different each in each implementation because you'll have plants all kind of all around the world. And it's more scalable. I mean, these power plant operations businesses, their business is to hire power plant operators. Mm-hmm. You know, our business is to design a scalable energy revolution. Yeah, it's a good tagline. Let's talk about the the waste a little bit because does that it normally stays on site for for plants, and that's something that I feel like e- even people who are like r- relatively curious and open minded about still view this as like a big problem or or yeah. blocker to like nuclear adoption. Yeah, it's a it's a um, it is their perception problem. It is not a safety or technical issue. Mm. The 
And quite frankly, for most people who have a problem with it, like it's not their problem because like they're not living in a community where anyone is proposing to build this. They're just <laughs> talking about it. But no, I mean, listen, nuclear waste has never hurt a single person, place, or thing in all of human history. So the idea that nuclear waste is dangerous is insane. But once again, if your five closest friends and everyone you know always said nuclear waste is the most hazardous thing on planet Earth, I can't fault you for believing that. But yeah, it's just not true. But please change your mind and vote nuclear. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, or, uh, listen, I mean, uh, I don't know. I think like the, as cultural shifts happen and, and different, you know, cultural divisions throughout society are more pro-nuclear, less pro-nuclear, whatever it is, people will naturally change their opinions to like move with the mass, to move with the herd. And so nothing I can do from a marketing perspective is going to change like the public's opinion but the public's opinion you know will change eventually as these other you know social forces come into play have you felt i mean you're you're kind of in the crow's nest to to see the winds of some of this change have you felt a change in the sort of ambient like opinion and interest in nuclear over the last decade or so yeah about 2 years ago there's a huge change i don't know where it came from but it's like all of a sudden it went from you know I was like telling people at cocktail parties, like first I'm an energy person and then like later in the thing say nuclear and then like that's all changed. Like <laughs> people are super like, yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is, but like the zeitgeist has shifted. I don't know what caused it, but interesting. Uh, years ago, like everyone I know is like, and it's always like, oh, all along I like nuclear. People are always saying like, oh, since I was a kid, I like nuclear. Uh, <laughs> I was like, okay, sure. Sure, you should maybe should have said it a few years ago, but whatever. Cool. Show me the tweet. Put it in the blockchain. Let me see it. Prove it. Prove it. So what is what has been going on? Has that change been reflected in in the regulatory at all? I mean, it's I'm optimistic now that no. sort of the NRC has approved no. something. Nothing. They haven't approved anything. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's announcements, but it's, they, it's not true. <laughs> well, they approved a new scale, right? New nope. scale's new. Nope. Nope. <laughs> they got a certificate. I'm, I remember the days that I used to get a certificate in elementary school for doing a good job on my homework, but that's not has no legal weight. No, no. What you need is a license, and they have not issued them a license, and that is still five years and $500 million away. And even they would admit the certificate is paper that they wouldn't wipe their ass with. Is that is that for the new design that they're proposing? Like, do you also need that license? And that's well, we're not going through the NRC for licensing, so I don't know what the certificate nonsense is, but it has zero <laughs> legal weight. Because so you and you don't have to go through it because you don't you're not building in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. The NRC governs domestic facilities, and our facilities are international. Okay. So you're going to have to at some point. Or not the NRC, no, the, the local regulator. And yeah, we're going through that process right now, but not any of this certificate bullshit. <laughs> you're getting a license. Like, you get a license. You want a license? You want to operate a facility? Get a license. <laughs> certificate is just like fun to hang on your wall, I guess. I don't know. <sighs> I'm, I, I hope that this, I don't know. I want, I want to believe regulators have their heart in the right place. I'll tell, I mean, listen, the Breakthrough know, Institute just, the Breakthrough Institute published this incredible article the other day about what happened, like Congress mandated. And once again, I'm going to preface this with like, I'm sure like the people at the NRC, smart, intelligent, like talking to them, hardworking, well-intentioned. It's There's an institutional problem though. 
And so what happened is Congress mandated that they streamline their price process for small reactors. And instead of streamlining it, they took all of the existing rules, added 1,200 pages of additional rules, not replacement rules, additional rules you have to follow. And that's where we are today. So how optimistic can you be? But why should you be optimistic? Why do you care if new nuclear gets built in the US first? I, like, I don't know why anyone cares. Like, eventually things might change, but like, build it somewhere else first. Like, why does that have to be the US? Because I live in the US and I want cheap electricity and I want the US to- We have cheap like, electricity. We have, we have cheap electricity. I want cheap electricity. So cheap. I want yeah, electricity not, too cheap to get, meter. Yeah, it's not going to get that cheap because of yeah. like, there's other things that you have to worry about, like transmission costs. Like when PG&E charges, I don't know, what, 13 cents a kilowatt hour, like the, the production of electricity was only 5 cents a kilowatt hour. Like mm -hmm. it's not going to get that cheap due to the way that like the market incentives are set up in the US. Like that's, that's another problem that has nothing to do with the production of power. Yeah, the energy markets are an insane thing. Like it's a whole convoluted, wild process unto itself. Like these sort of short-term auctions, long-term auctions, price floors, rebates for different generations. Like it's so complex. Yeah. No, the U.S. is the absolute worst when it comes to like being able to understand the electricity markets in the U.S. No human is capable of this. Like, I don't think AI, like <laughs> I, I, this ChatGPT stuff is amazing, better than I ever thought it would get. I even think it would crash under the weight of trying to understand the US electricity <laughs> markets. Even GPT-3 could not get a license from the NRC. Uh, I'll hold my breath for GPT-7 to like figure this out. Yeah. Okay. So, so how do you, how do you see the next 50 years playing out in, in the energy industry and nuclear in particular? I think no matter what. Not just 100%, but 10x today's energy production, 1,000% will someday be entirely driven by nuclear. Yeah, you might make chemical fuels out of nuclear and then ship those chemical fuels around the world, but it is an inevitability at some point. We might have to have civilization collapse and rebuild itself, but when some future alien civilization comes here and sees you know, what we're driving our energy off of as a root source, it will be nuclear, no doubt. And so I don't know, you know, I think it could happen much faster. I think it happened in 20 years, 30 years, have a total energy revolution. And maybe it takes 150 years, but eventually it will be 100% nuclear. It does seem like the, something approaching the logical end state, right? Like Steve Jurvetson talks about this stuff all the time. He's like, what do you consider inevitable over a very long arc? Yeah. Yeah. So, so oh, that's a great way to think about things. Yeah. I think he, and I've heard him say, like, there's three that I have high conviction about, which is all cars will be electric, all cars will be autonomous, and his third is we will no longer raise and kill animals for meat. I don't know about a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I like a, it's a it's a good frame of question, but I think I think your frame on like almost all, I think you know something approaching like no fossil fuels or entirely nuclear power is a reasonable is a reasonable thing to think about in that frame yeah i definitely feel that way and i think all tolerance will be autonomous eventually but electric and the meat thing i'm just not so sure i think that and that's one of the problems with silicon valley and one of the reasons i like had to leave in 2017 was there was just like too much bubble thinking yeah. and i think like the like how people feel about their relationships with animals. Like you would believe the whole world feels that it is totally inhumane to kill an animal if you lived in Silicon Valley. 
but there are like fundamental cultural differences in other places that would not lead you to that same inevitability because there's really a moral question in addition to a technical one and people have a very different moral lens on that yeah i I'd agree i mean there's a there's a there's a big broad world out there and lots of different people live in a lot of different ways i noticed you did not say a mix of renewables and nuclear and that felt deliberate yeah i just don't I mean, listen, I emotionally love renewables. My first job was at a solar, uh, you know, like mm. a frontier tech solar company, thin film solar panels, nanosolar. I love it. I love the way that wind turbines look and I love the machinery in them. And I think it's just so cool. And especially like the ocean based platforms of Olympus, I think it's so cool. But like from a practical perspective, like it doesn't really make sense. The energy is so dilute. The distribution of that energy is intermittent. These are fundamental principles. And then there's the carbon footprint too. Like if you are using 1,000 times as much material to produce the same amount of energy, all material has a carbon footprint no matter what way you cut it. And so, I mean, there's a lot of fishy accounting right now in carbon footprints, but even the strong advocates of renewables will still admit that they have a carbon footprint. They'll just erase that in the marketing literature, but they won't dispute the fact. Mm -hmm. And I like so you're adding more carbon to the air, maybe not at the same rate as fossil fuels, but if what you like about renewables is that they don't produce carbon, you are wrong. And you should re-question that assumption. And if we add keep adding more carbon, then we're not removing carbon. And this whole goal of net zero is just totally ridiculous as well. We will have increasing climate impacts, not just going to net zero, but unless we go drastically net negative. And if your carbon footprint for renewables is too high to achieve that negative rate, boy, oh boy, like it almost doesn't matter what you do. It's just a matter of maybe slowing down climate change by a couple of years, but you should really look at yourself in the mirror if you think that's your goal. Yeah, that was another thing that I, I wrote down when I was listening to some of your talks and you were thumping the podium with this amazing line, if climate change is going to be solved, it will be entirely through nuclear. Yeah. Yep. And I think yeah. that's, you know, that that's kind of, the, you, you went rationale before takeaway, but I think that's the, I think that was your argument for that statement, right? Yeah, I have a bunch of YouTube, I used to do like these university circuits. And so I've got a ton of YouTube videos that like walk through that line of reasoning very carefully. It usually takes me about like 20 minutes. It's like build up to the point, you know, where that is indisputable. But yeah, that's the takeaway. Cool. I know that this is... Uh, a frustratingly summarizing question to ask somebody who has given hours and hours of talks about nuclear. But what are some of the things, you know, that you wish everyone knew? I want people to think of nuclear as beautiful. I'm not a, like a woo-woo person, but I do mean like beautiful architecturally, but also beautiful spiritually, beautiful in terms of like its impact on human prospects and human flourishing. And so I want to create that world for people that People think nuclear is beautiful. It is fucking magic. It is a staggering thing that something smaller, almost smaller than we can conceive, has bonded together in a way that we can separate those bonds and unleash millions of times the energy that comes from this like inert little thing that's smaller than we can yeah. conceive. Is an yeah, absolute like, miracle. The fact that we are not is, all of our lives haven't been radically transformed over the last hundred years by that realization is like I know. I know. We'll eventually get there. It is so awesome. I mean, it's like <clears throat> what's more powerful than a sun? 
or a star, I should say, what's more powerful than a star? An exploding star. And nuclear, like, like uranium that we break apart is literally like the bonded battery remnants of an exploded star. I mean, it's just so cool. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Can people without domain-specific backgrounds get jobs in and be productive in nuclear companies and the nuclear industry? Totally. We almost have a rule of not hiring. I mean, other than like for the nuclear systems themselves, we don't hire anyone from the nuclear industry almost as a rule at our company. Interesting. You have a ton of open roles. I was, I was going through the careers page today. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff. We're open. growing fast. We're growing fast. <laughs> yeah. We got what's, like $5 billion worth of electricity contracts to fulfill. So. Oh my God. What's, what's like the, the stage and status of Last Energy right now? Yeah, I mean, we're an early stage venture back company, but this last year we just had so much commercial traction that now it's just a matter of like grow, grow, grow. That's awesome. What an exciting time, man. Yeah. I I'm so glad that you picked up the the sword and shield that you walked around <laughs> yelling at people to it's like, it's, it's so funny. Like, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. This is how you move the, you know, your industry forward and nobody did it. And you just eventually sighed and you're like, ah, oh, fuck it. Like, <laughs> here we go again. That is, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thank you for, thank you for saving the world. I appreciate you, you know, being willing to go fight the battles and bring us into a more beautiful nuclear future. Thank you. Thank you for your time as well. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, you will absolutely love two previous episodes that are related, adjacent, and similar to this. Uh, episode number 34 with Josh Stores Hall, the author of Where's My Flying Car, is all about the next industrial revolution that could happen in our lifetimes through the combination of AI, nuclear energy, and nanotechnology. It's a mind-blowing book and a great interview. Um, I also did a solo cast about that book. I think that's episode 32. Another great one is Mark Nelson, who actually uh, Brett mentioned in our interview. It's all about the history of the nuclear energy industry. We talk about the energy markets uh, that complicate the delivery of cheaper energy that's generated and a lot more. Um, Mark is also a great interview, highly recommended episode number 45. Please go check out athenago.com or invest alongside me and my partners in Rolling Fund. Links to both are in the show notes. One more reminder, please leave a quick review for the show or text this episode to a friend or coworker you think would enjoy it. It doesn't seem like much, but it's so massively important and I read every review and it's how the show grows. Thank you very much. I love you. Goodbye. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617. 
the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.